We are reading this morning from Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery." for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice the abomination, these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord.
each week that the word that we have in front of us is the very word of God. The book of James talks about the word of the Lord as if it is a mirror. It likens God's word to a mirror. And here's what we know what mirrors do. They accurately reflect what is in front of them. And we may not like what they reflect sometimes when we look ourselves in the mirror. We may not agree with them saying what they're saying about us and wish things were different, but they reflect accurately what's actually there. There are wrinkles on your face, they will show up in the mirror. If your hair is disheveled, it will be in the mirror. Whatever you have on you, it will show up in the mirror. And this is actually a good thing. These things that elude our vision in kind of normal life cannot be hidden when you look in a mirror. They cannot be avoided any longer. If you hold up a mirror, you are now revealed. You are now displayed for who you actually are. And when the mirror of God's Word is held up, it accurately reflects what's there. Now, not physically, are we speaking anymore? It's not as if you look at your face and see your physical face in the mirror of God's Word, but it reveals what's in our hearts, what our souls are like, the the hidden recesses of our hearts, the iniquity that hides deep within can be hidden in all sorts of ways, but before God's Word, the mirror of God's Word, it's revealed. It's just showing us what's actually there. It's all exposed. Romans Chapter 7 talks about this, as the Apostle Paul says, If it not been for the law, the mirror of God's word, I wouldn't have known sin. I didn't know what it was to covet until the law came along and said, don't covet. He goes on to say, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, Paul's not saying that there wasn't sin in him and that the law brought it out or made something there that wasn't there. He knew it was there, but it was hidden until the law came along and said, don't covet. And then he started seeing himself in the light of the mirror. And he said, well, sin was dead before then. Now I see that sin is alive and it's everywhere. It's taken over. And Ezra, in chapter 9, he's arrived in the promised land. And he is a man who has set himself and his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. So he gets to the promised land and he starts setting about this ministry of holding up the mirror of the law in front of the Jews. Holding up the mirror of God's law, this holy word in front of God's people and what it reveals is an ugly mug. There's a serious problem there. There's faithlessness among the people. Their guilt goes all the way up to their necks. There's a serious response because of the serious faithlessness, a response of mourning and confession. And the serious nature that the scripture takes here, that Ezra takes here in light of the problem of faithlessness in the land, in light of his great mourning and grief, should lead us to consider our own faithlessness and how we might respond to it in a serious way as well. Chapter 9 begins four months after Ezra's arrival. In chapter 7, verse 9 we see that he left from the, in the first month and he arrived in the fifth month. And then in chapter 10, verse 9, which we'll get to next week, they gather in the ninth month. So we've got this four-month window that Ezra has been in the promised land. Now some think that this four-month window, in this four-month window, that what we're going to find, what we're going to read in Nehemiah, chapter 8 of Ezra's reading of the law, might have happened during that, that window. During that time, Ezra might have read the law as Nehemiah... 8 says. That's entirely possible. 
even if that's not the case, what we know is that Ezra is a man who set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. So certainly, that was his objective and mission as he returned to the promised land. We know that Ezra has set his life on this. He has used these four months, we're sure, in some capacity to carry out that mission. So he's been busy. So in this four-month window, maybe it was that Nehemiah 8 reading of the law or in other ways of reading the law. And here's where he finds himself. Chapter 9, verse 1, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and they said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, they have not separated themselves from the uh, peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. I think that what's going on here is that the response and the report that Ezra is hearing is, is likely from a response of his reading the law to them. So they understand so clearly that they're out of balance, that the mirror has been put up in front of them and they see like we've got some things that we've got to fix here. There are some serious issues going on. Their faithlessness has been displayed and it's been displayed uniquely in their lack of separation from the peoples of the land and they're giving themselves in marriage to those of the land. Now, to our ears, that doesn't sound like such a big deal. So why is this called faithlessness? Well, it's because of the law of God. If you look back in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, here's what God told his people. Observe what I've commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you, again, the similar list here, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. He repeats this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly." The, the concept of separation from the people of the land couldn't be more clearly and, I mean, emphasized in Exodus as the strong words are being used. He's talking about this. He doesn't want his people that he's jealous over to commit spiritual adultery in the land. That's what he's after. The separation was not about, let's keep the races mixed. That's not what God is after. The ban on marriage wasn't about some sort of genetic issue as if Israel and the people of Israel have a holy gene and all the other nations don't have it. It's not about mixed races. It's about mixed faith. It's a religious issue. It's why he calls their disobedience here faithlessness. Because this is a religious, a spiritual issue. There's spiritual adultery that God had commanded them not to commit. We know this is true, that this isn't a racial issue in terms of mixing the race, because we know Moses had a wife, Zipporah. She was a Moabite. 
Remember the story of, of Ruth? Now, she was the Moabite, uh, and she enters into the people of God. Or we can even see in chapter 6, verse 21 of the book of Ezra, it says that this, this Passover, it was celebrated even by the people of Israel who'd returned from exile and also all who had joined them. Uh, the problem wasn't that you, if you were outside the nation of Israel, we weren't to be a part of that. The problem was if you were outside the nation of Israel, you were serving other gods. And if you wanted to serve the one true living God, you could join in with the people of God. And that's exactly what he wanted. Ruth does it. Zipporah does it. In chapter 6, verse 21, others have done it. But God did give a warning for a reason. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, here's what he says. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Part of the reason for the command to not join with the peoples of the land, even in marriage, is because God had called a certain people to be a holy people. They uniquely were his people, and he uniquely was their God. And part of being a holy people before their holy God was separating or avoiding the unholy and uh, influence and people of the land. The, the problem was not that marriage was an issue or that them being in close proximity was the issue, apart from how they could be drawn away spiritually by those things. God knew that if you give yourselves in marriage, that if you make these tight partnerships and covenants with people of the land, if you have some sort of close partnership and relationship there, that can lead you to turning away from the Lord. And this tragedy is so evident in King Solomon. He's right after King David, the son of King David, was a great king, gifted with wisdom and yet he has this tragic story of being drawn away from wholehearted worship to God. Here's what 1 Kings says, 1 Kings chapter 11. Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And Solomon is evidence of the goodness of God. God wasn't being stern or strict or overbearing with this command to not mix with the peoples of the land. He knew that their hearts are susceptible to being drawn away into worshiping other gods. He is being good and wise as always as he gives this command to not intermarry and have close covenant relationship with people of the land because hearts are easily carried into faithlessness. So he says, there should be no close partnerships, no covenants, no intermarriage with the people of the land because you're holy and your hearts are easily drawn away. Now, knowing that hearts haven't changed, Paul makes a similar argument in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to the church in Corinth, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? All the loving, pursuing questions from Paul to draw them out to this great answer of, well, we don't have any partnership with that. He says, I'm going to, God said, I will make you my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Paul calls for the people of God, the church at Corinth, to be holy. And part of that calling to be holy includes cleansing themselves from unequal yokes, from tight partnerships that would lead them astray because he knows that the heart that is inside of each of us can easily be led astray. So don't be unequally yoked, he says. One commentator says that to be yoked together, it's a metaphor referring to any kind of joint participation, formal or informal, that significantly forms one's own identity. Now, certainly this applies to marriage, and that's where you see it most significantly worked out. That's why Ezra specifically even talks about this intermarrying, that there's some unequal yokes going on here that are not good. But I think that there are other kinds of joint participations, and I like that phrase, that significantly form us and mold us and fashion us and our identity. For instance, some are yoked to their news source. It has tremendous formative power. Has that not been so clearly displayed? And here's the problem with that tremendous formative power, is that it's not the source of truth. So we have to be really careful. News sources, just in general, have a high incentive to lie to you, or to keep you scared, or to keep you angry. That actually helps them. And so when we say that we're going to yoke ourselves together with this so low news source, we might be yoked in a way that might lead our hearts astray from worship of the one true living God. It's not a person, but a source that has tremendous formative power. I'm going to give another non-person source, your phone. Now, your phone attaches to so much, so you take it how you will, right? But it has tremendous formative power power. There is so much that connects from our phone to us in our life. Some of us are literally yoked to our phone. We don't leave anywhere without it. It is always with us, and it is always forming and informing how we live and act and breathe. That it has tremendous formative power because we're thinking about what takes place in and through that phone. And so we have to think about even that partnership, whatever you call it, between man and phone, we have to think about that participation rightly. And I think one author says, gives us a few good questions for this. Does or do my smartphone behaviors move me toward God or away from Him? That's the key question in any participation with something else, right? Does this lead me toward God or not? Do my smartphone behaviors edify me and others, or do they build nothing of lasting value? 
This is a formative power in our lives. And so we need to think carefully about our relationship to it. We have to be careful with all of our joint participations of any kind so that we can be faithful. God has called us to be holy so that we don't turn away from wholehearted devotion to the Lord. We watch every single relationship we have in the right ways to make sure that we are not being drawn away from love to God supremely. Now that's a principle that was part of God's command to Israel in regard to how they deal with the peoples in the land. You need to watch your relationships, so that you aren't drawn away. Because that's the history of Israel, as Ezra knows it. He looks at Solomon. That's when it started in full force. Solomon was drawn away, and then the people started being drawn away. And worshiping all sorts of other gods all the time. There was rampant idolatry. And part of it was because they just neglected the command that God had given them. It was about their holiness. But it was also about the mission of God. What were the people of God to be? What were they to do on this earth? Why had God made them his special people? He wanted to bless the nations through this people. They were to be a light to the nations. He said to Abraham, if people come to you, if they bless you, I'm going to bless them. If they curse you, I'm going to curse them. But I'm going to bless the nations in and through you, Abraham. And so the mission of God for the people of God was to bless all the nations of the earth. They were to be this light in the world to draw people towards one true or worship to the one true living God, not be drawn away from it. So what was to compel the nations? What was to draw people to the light in Israel? What was to draw people of, that were walking in idolatry and worshiping other gods? It was worship to the one true living God. The main thing that was distinct about Israel wasn't their size. They were insignificant. It wasn't their strength. Again, fairly insignificant. Persia, they're not concerned about Israel's size. Right? It wasn't some other setup. It wasn't even worship. All the nations worshiped, right? We're all worshiping all the time. It's where we're directing that worship. It wasn't that they had a God. All the nations had some sort of God, and they could even say, hey, we beat you in war, so maybe our God's bigger than your God, better than your God. Here's what's distinct about Israel, is that their God is the Lord, and that their worship is directed to the Lord and to Him only. It's to the one true living God. And so to compel the nations, to draw the nations, to be light to the nations, they were to have this undivided devotion and worship toward the one true living God. They were to worship the Lord only only. And their purity in that matters, not just for their own souls, but for the sake of the nations it matters. God wanted them to bless the nations because they were living in the way that God had called them to live so that they could see there's something different about this people. It's something different about their God. That was to be compelling to the nations. So not only does their holiness matter, the mission of God matters. The nations matter to God in giving these commands to the people of Israel. And so again, we say that God isn't being stern and strict and, and trying to restrain them, and it's just this restraining God who keeps frustrating us when we want to just be friends with the people in the land. He's acting out of his goodness, out of his wisdom. He is watching out not only for his people, he's watching out for the nations too. And in his infinite wisdom and goodness, God is still doing this. And listen to the words that Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you're a chosen race, speaking to believers, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. People of God, your words and your deeds, he's saying, they have uh, missionary implications. They have missionary intent. Both your words, you're to be proclaiming the excellencies and the glories of God, and your deeds that are to be lived out in front of unbelievers are proclaiming something. They're to be missionary in intent, to be drawing people in. And so he says, so abstain from certain things. Keep your conduct a certain way, honorable, that God might display his glory among you, through you, to unbelievers. So God's people, here called a holy nation and exiles at the same time, are to proclaim God's excellencies and, as exiles, abstain from certain things in the world. Purity matters. Your separation from certain things matters to God for your sake, for the world's sake so that those excellencies could expand and fill the earth as water fills the sea, because we are easily swayed and because we have a mission. We're to proclaim and to abstain. And so like Israel in the promised land, believers, our words, our conducts, our relationships, all of our joint participations, they have implications. So we have to be careful with all of them. And Ezra grasps this. He sees and hears the report about what's going on of God's people mixing with the peoples of the land, of them neglecting the commands of God, and he grasps the gravity of the situation, the, the weight of all that's happening, and the weight of this problem, and the failure to obey God's law, and it evokes great grief in Ezra. Look back in Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread my hands out to the Lord my God. Now, what Ezra's displaying are displays of intense grief, intense mourning. Like This is likened to death here. It's as if something has gone horribly wrong. It's as if someone has died. That's what his responses are like. And we might look at this and think, I think that might be a little over the top. Ezra might be, in a little bit, be being a little bit true dramatic. But is he? Ezra set his heart, what, to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it. And after holding up that mirror of God's law in front of Israel, he sees this messed up image, and it leads him to this response of great grief and great mourning. The law was doing exactly what the law is going to do. It was revealing what was actually there. It was accurately portraying and displaying their sin before a holy God. It was showing 
God is holy, and the people, in light of that God, are sinful. The law is revealing an utterly holy God to be regarded as holy, and one who hates sin, and an utterly unholy and sinful people who continue, as Ezra is saying, to treat God profanely and with irreverence. And in light of a holy God that he has studied about and seen in the law, and in light of this ugly people, because of their sin, Ezra is led to mourning and grief. And isn't that the right response? In light of a holy God, isn't sin worthy of being mourned and great grief? In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has a similar response. Remember he sees this vision, he sees the Lord seated on the throne. I mean, he might have gotten a closer glimpse than anybody of the greatness and the holiness of God. Angels are around this place singing, holy, holy, holy. That's all they're saying. And it's shaking this place. It's an amazing scene. And what comes out of Isaiah's mouth? It's instructive. Woe is me. Grief. He says, I'm undone. He mourns. Woe is me. And not just me. I have unclean lips, but this people that I'm with, they also have unclean lips. In light of a holy God, his sin is exposed, the sin of his people is exposed, like the mirror is being held up and it is showing some ugliness. And he says, I'm undone, and pronounces a curse upon himself and saying, woe is me. And I think Isaiah's right. To see God rightly and to see himself in light of who God is, is going to lead to something like that, to great mourning to being saying, I'm lost, I'm undone, woe is me. Or maybe we're going to pull out our hair and our beards. It, it starts with mourning. In the book of James, chapter 4, James speaks of sin that's everywhere. What causes quarrels and fights? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Uh, What's the problem in any relationship that you're having fights and quarrels? Like, you have sin in you. That's what he says. It's not outside of you that's the problem. You have sin in you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So four verses, and James just levels us all, and he just points out sin everywhere. There's, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. So what are we to do about it? Chapter 4, verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, that's fun, but it's Right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, and he starts with this progression in these Beatitudes, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, a really natural way of moving through them, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who see they're bankrupt before God. Not that they're pretty poor before God, but we still have a little bit in the bank to bring up in reserve whenever we're before God, and we think like, he needs a little something extra. Oh, we've got this. You do most of it, but I've got a little bit. No. Nope. Bankrupt before God, nothing before God, completely empty, have nothing to say to you. 
Nothing to claim that would make me worthy in your sight. Completely poor. Bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he moves to this. Who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. So there's a progression from seeing yourself completely bankrupt before the Father in spirit, knowing that you have nothing before him, that you deserve his wrath, his judgment, that you're spiritually very needy. And then it moves to what do you do in light of that you mourn. And I like what one pastor said, that to mourn is something that follows of necessity from being poor in spirit. It is quite inevitable. As I confront God and his holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness, and I discover my quality of spirit, and immediately that makes me mourn. So I think we could say that no mourning means that we're not rightly looking into the mirror of God's word. That we're not rightly seeing God or rightly seeing our sin in light of this holy God. That we have some sort of wrong view of either of God and his holiness or of our own sin in light of his holiness. And Martin Lloyd-Jones continues that if that's the case, if one feels anything in the presence of God, save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced him. Why does he give? Because poverty in spirit is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. And nothingness leads to what? Of necessity, mourning. It follows inevitably from seeing who we are in God's sight. There should be mourning. Ezra, he set his heart to study the law, to do it, to teach it, and his mourning started surely maybe in Babylon with his own sin, and it should start there with us too as we see our own sin before this holy God. Isaiah starts with his own sin. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And so I think the question before us is, has our sin appalled us in any way similar to these men? Has it led us to mourn? Have we grieved that before the Father we are undone in light of a holy God and His Word, His law, in light of how it exposes our sin, there should be some mourning. Once the exceeding sinfulness of sin is known, it doesn't just stop with mourning for our own sin. It leads to more. Isaiah says, woe is me, I have unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. Ezra is mourning here, grieving greatly the sin of the people. They're in the promised land, they're God's people, and yet they're sinful, they're unholy, and he mourns because of it. It has to start with personal sin, so we don't move beyond that. If you don't mourn your own sin, you would never rightly mourn any other sin. We don't want to have this plank and speck situation going on that Jesus talks about also in the Sermon on the Mount. But once the problem of sin is realized, you start to see that it's way worse in me than I thought and way worse everywhere than I thought. And it leads to mourning the sin that's in God's people. In 1 Corinthians, Paul mourns. The sins of the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. 
ought you, ought you not rather to mourn? In other words, there's unholiness in the people of God, and what ought they to do because of it? They ought to mourn. Because there's sin there, it's present. Why? Because he's told them already who they are. You as the believers are the very temple of God. The Spirit dwells in you uniquely as God's people, as His church. You're to be a a holy people. Sin is not to be found among you. And because it has this deteriorating effect, a little leaven will work through the entire lump. So be careful. Ought you rather to mourn? A right response to sin among self and among God's people is to mourn. But I think we could carry mourning out further. You start looking at sin, not only in yourself and in God's people, but, but even at large. Paul says in Romans 12, 9, you are to hate, abhor what is evil. If you rightly see it for what it is and you look around, then you're going to find some things to mourn. Or Romans 8, there's this groaning that's going on in creation. And what's it groaning for? Because it's been subjected to futility. It's waiting for redemption. So those who are children of God who know God, who rightly have mourned their sin, look around at the world, and they groan too. Oh, God, bring about that redemption that you've been talking about and that you've promised that we might be finally and fully sons of God in your kingdom and with you forever. There's just sin everywhere. It's in us. It's in the church. It's in God's people. It's in the world. There's there's plenty to mourn. And so I think as we look at Ezra and his response to what's going on in the promised land, the question shouldn't be, why does Ezra respond the way he responds and tear his clothes and pull out his hair? But why don't we? Maybe his response is a little bit more faithful. Now, I'm not saying that we should tear our clothes and rip out our hair. Maybe. I'm serious, maybe. Maybe we do need to throw ourselves down before the Lord and spread our hands out because our sin is that bad and the sin around us is that bad and the sin of the world is that bad. A right look at God and His Word show us our sin and it can lead to mourning It doesn't have to be expressed this way necessarily. There's no, here's the right way to mourn in the scripture. But here's a faithful man mourning in this way. Man, what a downer of a sermon so far, right? (laughs) But remember what God says in Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? They're going to be comforted. The faithlessness and the guilt of Israel appalled Ezra. Have we ever been appalled by our own sin, by the sin around us? It made him mourn and grieve. This is not all he did. He didn't just sit there and mourn and grieve forever. There is a response. And you're thinking, man, we've spent a lot of time on a couple of verses and we've got a long way to go. We're going to go through quickly what he was appalled by and how he responds. He moves to confession. Verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord, saying, what's he going to do with sin? He does what he should do with it, what should be done with sin. He takes it to God in confession of it. He recognizes that sin, all sin, is first and foremost against God, not against others. It's vertical before it's horizontal. It could be both, and it often is. Your sin will never stay contained to just you and God. 
It will affect others in different ways. But it is first an offense against the holy God. And so he takes it to God. And he says, verse 6, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. God's people have a history of faithlessness. He's just joining in them, saying, our, our faithlessness in the past has led to your judgment. And that's what should have happened. We disobeyed your word. That's our history, and he owns it before God. But God has done more than just judge. Verse 8, now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within the holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection." in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded to your servants, the prophets. And he quotes what we read earlier. And therefore, we're not to give our daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. In verse 13, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this? Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today, and behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. With a new exodus, where God has delivered again his people out of their slavery in another foreign land and brought them from captivity into the promised land to worship, and with a new exodus, they're in the promised land to worship, what are they doing with it? The same thing that has been done before. They're following in the footsteps of faithlessness. And yet he says that God hasn't just poured out judgment upon you, that actually he's extended to us, as we're saying to the company around him, favor and his steadfast love. You know, look around. They, they could say we're living in promises kept by God. He said that he was going to exile us. He did. And he said he was going to deliver us from that. And he did. And here we are. He's delivered on his promises to return us from exile. And he's done that because he's good. He's loved us. We're not getting what we deserve. We deserved much more in captivity. We deserve much more even now. In other words, they've kind of, in a sense, passed through judgment and arrived on the other side, and instead of judgment, they're receiving the outpouring of God's grace and God's love. They're in the promised land. The temple's been built. They have favor with the kings. If not for God's favor, none of that could have happened. None of them could have standed, not even a remnant. And as God's people who've experienced the great grace of God, 
They've passed through his judgment and are out on the other side. They're receiving his favor. What are they to do? They should do what all should do in response to God's grace. Now, Romans chapter 12 summarizes a lot of, or says basically, in, in light of all that I've said in 11 chapters about this great gospel of God, that you were children of wrath and you deserve his wrath and judgment, but he's delivered you and made a way for you through the gospel, through Jesus, that you can be justified in the sight of God, even though you're a sinner. You're like, what should you do in light of that? And he answers this. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of his mercies, here's what you do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What are you to do in response to the grace and the favor and the love that's been poured out to you in the gospel? Worship the Lord. Like give yourself wholly to Him. Don't be conformed to this world. Be careful with all those partnerships and their influence on your life. That's what you're to do. People haven't changed. The sinful heart remains the same, and, and the commands are so similar. None who receive the grace and mercy of God should go on living as if nothing has happened. Paul even says that in Romans, right? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? When you say, hey, God has been gracious to us to put us back in the promised land. Maybe we can go on sinning so that the world would see how gracious he is. Christians make the same argument too, right? We could say, well, I've experienced the grace of God. God's grace is so great. See, it even meets me in the middle of my sin and he's gracious to me still. So we could argue, should I go on sinning that grace would just continue to increase? And Paul says, no way. You don't go on sinning. You put yourself on the altar and say, what can I do for you, Lord? I'm wholly yours. My life is to be a, a wholehearted devotion to you. My life is to be lived in worship before you. That's the right response is to live a holy life of obedience and worship to him. A God who is that gracious, that he would forgive sinners, that he would deliver people that deserved his judgment and bring them back into the promised land, is a God worth obeying and worshiping. So the question for God's people that Ezra kind of lays out in front of them that we need to hear as well is, what are we doing with that grace? How are we responding to the favor and the love and the grace that God has shown to us? And I think if we let that question penetrate our hearts a bit, if we see ourselves rightly in view of the mirror of God's law, which reveals a holy God, and the mirror of God's grace, it could lead us to verse 15. O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. We are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. We haven't responded to God's grace rightly. Even that has displayed our sin. And so we can join in with this crowd here and say, we're before you in our guilt. None of us can stand before you. Man, what a downer again. A lot of mourning and now we stand before him and that's how it ends. We're in our guilt and none can stand. What's to be done then? I think what Ezra does here is vital. 
he acknowledges reality. He acknowledges God and that he is just. And that before him we stand guilty and that we cannot stand before him. He acknowledges that we stand before a holy and just God without a plea or some hope of gain from God. He just says, this is who we are before you, and he sits in it. I mean, full stop at the end of verse 15. He stops. And it ends. No more to the confession here. He just acknowledges guilt. None can stand. God is just, and he sits there. Not quite the the hopeful message you were looking for. And yet, strangely, I think he links us to a vital step to get out from under guilt before God. One commentator says that this little phrase, speaking of the the very end, that before we are before you in our guilt, none can stand before you because of this, constitutes the highest form or the highest form of worship. An acknowledgement of God, even though at the same time it accepts that the worshiper has forfeited his or her right to live before God. God is thus praised solely for who he is and not merely for what the worshiper hopes to gain from him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just gone to God in your guilt? without any claims whatsoever, and sat before him in that and said, we are guilty before you, we cannot stand. Or personally, right? I am guilty before you, I cannot stand, and just sat in that. That's what Ezra does. To just say, God, you're just. If I receive condemnation, you're just. I deserve it. We have to wholeheartedly accept that, or there is no hope. We have to wholeheartedly accept that before the Lord, we cannot stand or there is no hope for us because if we can't go before him as he is, as this just God and say, I can't stand, then we will never seek for help. Because we might think that we're poor in spirit, but we have a little bit in reserve. Truly, God is just and none. I cannot stand. You cannot. We cannot stand. And just for that alone, God is to be praised. It reflects him. He is just. He is holy. And that we are before him in our sin and attributing to him that he is just is good and right. None can stand. But I also think that we have clear biblical warrant to add, and I don't think Ezra would mind, none can stand on his own. But we don't have to stand on our own. And perhaps Ezra gives us a preview of this, in a sense. We are like Israel in our guilt before a holy God. He is just, and we deserve his judgment, his condemnation, but we had a priest step in and identify fully with our sin and with us in our guilt. And he didn't just identify with it in confession, he bears it in crucifixion. And he does this so that those who can't stand before God and who know they can't stand before God and who know that God is just to condemn them can still come to God and have relationship with God and have redemption before God through his body and through his blood. 
That is that we can stand before him because we don't plead anything that we have. We just plead the merits of Jesus' blood. Then it's through that blood that we have eternal redemption, not because we have done anything or can stand on our own. We cannot stand on our own. So church, favor has been shown to us. God's steadfast love has been extended to us in his son. What will we do with it? Romans 12 says, in in view of God's mercy, offer yourself as a living sacrifice unto God. Perhaps that's what you should do if you've never done it before, is to just say, God, I am condemned before you. I cannot stand. You are just, but I'm yours. Do what you want. Or if you're a believer, why don't you just make that commitment again? (laughs) Say, God, again, I'm on the altar. Use me as you will. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we are... All of us in this room this morning are standing before the mirror of your word. And Father, the truth is, is that we all have been exposed. We all are guilty. We all are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And Father, the truth of the matter is, is that we all have a choice this morning to how we will respond. Our choice is, do we see our sin as, as bad as you see it? Or do we just see it as some fault that we might have? Or are our, are our hearts broken over our sin and we feel the guilt that we, we saw in Ezra and uh, 9. And God, what will we do? God, will we choose to, to walk away and not make any changes? Will we choose to just say, hmm, well, that's just the way I am? Or will we choose to see your grace that has been dis- demonstrated to us so greatly through the cross? And just confess and, and ask you just to, to forgive us. God, we have choices to make this morning. And I pray as we, we just sit here in our, our chairs, God, that we will respond to you, God. And that we will look to you and that we will ask you, God, just to, to reveal yourself to us. God, thank you for your grace. That is so great. It's greater than our sin. And God, help us this morning, God, just to to respond to you as was shared with us from Romans, that, that we would just present ourselves to you completely. God, help us today by your spirit, Lord, just to 
to respond to you in a way that would be honoring and pleasing to you and that we would be your people. And God, I pray if there's someone here, God, who has never, God, opened their hearts to you, that some way, somehow today, God, that your spirit would just move mightily and that you would draw that person to you and they would say yes to Jesus today, that they would see their sin and they would see, God, the grace that you poured out for them through the cross. God, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray.